Whether you're an independent artist or a fan that loves them, makingascene.org is the place for you. For the music fan, we bring you in-depth interviews and CD reviews from artists who are on the cutting edge of original music. For the independent artist, we bring you articles on music business, recording techniques, gear reviews, and interviews with industry professionals that give you real-world information to help you negotiate the new realities in the music industry and give you the tools you need to move your career to the next level. We bring you new content every day. Makingascene.org is the number one resource for the independent artists and the fans that love them. Head on over and become part of the Indie Revolution. And now, here is a double shot from our featured artist today, Dominic Sicala. And stay tuned for that interview. It comes up right after these songs. Just like 
Dominic Chikala from his brand new release, and we got Dominic on the line right now. Hey, Dominic, how you been? I've been great, man. How about you? You know, I'm, I'm hanging in there. I'm trying to stay out of trouble, but it's not one of my many talents. So, you know, <laughs> I put an effort in. Now, well, that's good. Effort, yeah. Effort's the important part. Yeah, that's, that seems to be the only requirement. Now, um, you've been on the show before, but it's been some time, and we always like to start off by giving our fans this opportunity to get to know who you are, not only as an artist, but as a person. And the best way to do that is to look at your journey, how you got to where you are today. So give us the story of Dominic Chikala. <laughs> All right, I'll do my best on that. It's um, it's not too intriguing along the way. Um, I am the proverbial Johnny come lately. Uh, I didn't start playing music um, until about 15 years ago, and I'm well in the latter part of my years. And um, and it, you know, I was a music fan. I was a rabid music fan who could tell you everything about every artist that I listened to and who played on what and who wrote what and. Um, and so I, I came to it from the fan side, and uh, I took a train trip with um, some rather distinguished songwriters, Dave Alvin and Butch Hancock and Terry Allen and Tom Russell, and I was so into it and so moved, I, I made a pact with somebody on that particular trip. I said, you know, I'm going to go home, and I'm going to learn to play guitar, and I'm going to write songs. And... Um, that's kind of what I did. It was a bit of a slow start. Um, I wrote some pretty bad songs. I think they've improved. I hope they've improved. Um, but yeah, before that, I just was a fan. Um, not really much to tell um, beyond that. Okay. Now, um, let's talk about the new release. When okay. you were putting this together, what was that spark of inspiration that drove this into existence? Wow. Well, I have a, a, a rather um, psychotic methodology, I would probably phrase it. Um, I have a couple of different projects going at the same time. And um, while I started this particular record in 2017, when I put out my last solo record, I have subsequently put out a bunch of products, including a, a duets record I put out that was a covers record um, about two years ago. So this was kind of brewing the basic tracks were done on a bunch of songs and i went to a producer friend of mine who had produced my previous projects and i said i've got like 30 songs give me the eight best songs and tell me if they're good enough for a record and if not tell me what's wrong and and can i fix them and uh he, he gave me the songs he he recommended and, and i added i think two songs to that particular list including one cover song and um the record was born as it got delivered from that particular moment. I decided what the songs were out of the bunch of things I had been working on in the studio that would make this new record. Okay. Now, um, let's talk about you as a songwriter. And one of the things I'm always curious about, what is what writer inspires you as a songwriter? Which one do you look at as your inspiration? Wow. Um, probably first and foremost, I'm a huge Springsteen fan. Unabashedly been following Bruce since the early 70s. And um, 
There's just something amazing, particularly through most of his career, about the way that he approached writing a song, the melodies he could come up with, um, the directness with which he could tell a story. Um, so I think probably, the, if I had to pick one, that would probably be the one that had the most influence on me. Okay. Now, when you sit down to begin that process, to start the writing process itself, what is that that uh, mechanism that you use to kind of tap into your muse? What's your process? Yeah, it's. Um, I, I imagine it's like a lot of folks. Um, I, I'm unlettered and un, unschooled and unskilled in the art of songwriting from a technical standpoint. I, um, I, I uh, do not read music. Um, and so I learned a few chords along the way. And when I sit down to write, most typically it's I sit down with a guitar and I just start playing a chord. And I start trying to find a melody that I haven't had before. And so that's kind of the, the, the anchor to it all. Can I come up with something that's not the same sound as something that I've done before? Um, it's not, sometimes I have a, a line that I've written down. I keep, um, actually keep an open email on my phone where I do voice texting every time I have a line or an idea and I compile it and then every so often I send it myself and it gets dumped into a Word document. So I sometimes start out with I've got a phrase or a chorus or something and, you know, how do I put something to this? But it's usually most often starting out just sitting down with a guitar and just strumming and playing a few little notes here and there, trying to find something that leads to something else. Okay. Now, you know, um, a lot of songwriters have embraced the technology today as tools in their toolkit, whether it's a cell phone, a home recording studio, or they use one of the online tools like Master Writer or the online, you know, rhyming dictionaries and so forth. What are some of the tools you have found to be indispensable to you as a writer? Oh, wow. So I have a pretty strong opinion on some of those things. Um, I, I don't... Um, I prefer to sit down and figure out if I can come up with what I want to come up with buried in the recesses of my brain with the knowledge that I have, the rhymes that I have. Um, I will then go um, occasionally, depends on if I get stuck, to a rhyming dictionary. And I love rhyming dictionaries. They're brilliant. And I think they are probably, of that list of things you gave, um, probably the only really indispensable writing tool and tool that a songwriter needs. Um, some of the other stuff, um, I don't do home recordings uh, because I don't have the skill and because um, the studio where I work and the engineer I work with produces a product that's just, so, in my opinion, so far superior sonically than anything I could get out of myself or out of most of the home studios that I'm aware of. Um, I'm not a fan of AI. I, I find it fascinating, but it, it scares me a little to think that I could get in a bind and say, well, let me just stick this in AI and, and see what AI gives me and then quietly pretend I did it on my own. So I'm still pretty organic, I guess, when it comes to that kind of stuff. I'm open to change my opinion, but it hasn't, it hasn't happened yet. Well, you know, it's interesting because I think you and I are pretty close in age. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. you, if you were listening to Springsteen back in the early 70s, we got to be, yep. we got to be close. I, yeah, I believe that. And, Back in the 
uh, in the 70s. I remember when the drum machine came in uh, to being when MIDI started to be, you know, gain prominence during, you know, the, the disco era. And a lot of producers started to create music without musicians because, right. you know, that technology gave that that uh, ability. And the music industry went into a total tizzy. Um, you know, we're going to destroy music as we know it. We're taking the humanity out of it, yada, yada, yada. Right. But now right. they're all tools. They're tools that we right. have. Every doll you buy has MIDI, has a drum machine, right. has all of those aspects built into it because we use those things now. They're they're part and right. parcel of our, our toolkit. And as songwriters, we're always listening for that next idea, whether it's overhearing a conversation or, you know, a, a meme on the Internet or something. And... AI in itself will spit out pretty much minutia, you know, that that has no direct emotional connection to whatever it is. But what I did find is there are diamonds in the rough within that minutia that will spark the human creativity to go in different directions. You know what I mean? Right. It can be right. used right. as a tool to f- to battle that blank page without you you know using it directly or verbatim. Let's put it that way. Right. Right. You can right. take a thought and say, "Wow, that's a good idea," just like you would have by overhearing a conversation or or someone you know um, tells you a, a joke or a mime or you see something on the internet whatever it may be it's the same process so right, i can right. see that ai being used as a tool going into the future yeah I, and I, I totally agree with that i think i think if you use it to spur your organic process to to aid that particular process that's different you know i guess i still think of it a lot as as kind of almost a plagiarism kind of thing ai is going to write this and maybe i'll change a word or two um it's kind of like you know when i was a kid it was cliff notes you know cliff notes on steroids right it did you know even with cliff notes you got the gist but you had to you had to fill in the blanks you had to still write the process you got the ideas, and you had to write around it. I, I guess, you know, as long as you use AI as a tool, absolutely. I think anything can be used as a tool. I think, like most things, you use it judiciously, and I think it will serve you well. Okay. Well, I, yeah, I think we're in agreement there. Now, uh, one of the things I think a lot of songwriters really get hung up on is when is the song finished? When do you put the pen down and move that into a production phase where it gets its, you know, you give it to the band, you give it to the producer, but you got to get to that point. And of course, the song always evolves. It evolves in the studio, even evolves after you record it and you take it out on the road, but you got to get there. What is your uh, quantifier that you like to use to determine when a song is ready to move to that next phase? Wow. Um, you know, I, I'll be honest, I think that's one of the hardest things um, to know if it's good enough, which is essentially what you're saying. So, you know, I tend to write um, 
I, I tend to trust my gut, and if I put something down and, and written it, and I, I finished it, finish it meaning, you know, it's got all the parts there, um, I may go back and change words, I may go check back and, and, you know, substitute a verse or something like that. But when I've got the gist of it down, I usually will then go into the studio, and, and it'll either stand the test of time, or it will evolve. Um, I think the Grateful Dead were, were probably a, a perfect band that used to work their material out before they went in the studio. I don't do it that way. As soon as I write a song, I'm eager to get in the studio and, and lay it down and, and see what it becomes. Um, and I have often, in the 11th hour, when I thought something was done, had to call up my studio and the engineer and say, listen, I need to come by and change a line, change a verse. You know, it just it like popped into my head on the way down the road. This is the perfect line. That line that I wrote wasn't the perfect line. I got to redo it. So I don't think there's um, I don't think there's a clear cut answer as to when you know it's done. I think I'm still so enamored with the songwriting process personally that when I write a song to completion, if I've stuck with it long enough to get it done, then I have some faith that it has some merit. Okay. Now. Of course, once you write a song, that's kind of half the battle. You have to now create its identity, its vibe, its groove. And right. you also have to create that vibe and groove and identity and sound for you as an artist. And that's all done in the studio. And that's another art form in itself. When you get in that environment, what is the process that you like to use that allows you to get the sound you're looking for? Um, it's, you know, it's an interesting, I love the studio. I, I, I think I've learned more about being a musician, um, my time in the studio and more about how to listen and listen critically. Um, for me, the, the process is, is almost always the same and, it, and it's not one I recommend because it's the costly way of doing it. I go in and I lay down a basic acoustic track with a vocal. And we cut it to a, typically to a click track so that other people can come in in layers and lay down their parts um, and build on it. Um, as far as the direction that it kind of goes and what I hear, you know, sound is like painting or anything else. Everything you tend to bring to that, what your vision is, what you hear coming out of that particular song. The new record, I think, has a lot of variety on it. And I think that's due to the fact that as I listen to the song, I heard things. And I, and I would then run it by the engineer or by other people and say, what if this happened? What if that happened? So I give them basically the skeleton. And then I bring in a bunch of folks who um, are, are gifted beyond anything I could imagine. And um, they put all the organs and the flesh and the blood and everything onto these tunes um, and make them really what they are. Um, I, I will say that um, a lot of times that's my misgivings when I bring a song in. It just played singular, singularly on an acoustic guitar. It's like, yeah. But then these guys throw stuff in there and stuff starts to happen. And it's just astounding. Okay. Now, uh, tell me about the lineup on this. Okay. Um, it's it's. Pretty consistent. I've got I've got a couple of um, folks guesting on it, which are you know, had important roles. Um, my lead guitar work on most of the record, um, with the exception of one track, is um, a guy named Blair Hogan, who's out of um, 
Toronto, Canada area. And um, Blair is a brilliant, talented, gifted human being. He just, I don't know, we're on the way, same same wavelength. You know, I'll give him a song and, and he'll come back to me with just the right idea. It's almost like we don't even have to talk about it most of the time. So he's on guitar um, on most of the tracks. Um, bass player is Mark Noon. Mark is... Um, a DC legend and stalwart. He um, was the front man for the Slicky Boys, which was the first DC band to ever be played on MTV back in the day. And um, and again, a gifted, talented musician, producer, um, drums. Eric Selby, again, another local guy who's just really tremendous and, and talented. Um, then we we've got some guesting in there. Arif Durrani on keys. Um, Bill Starks does some amazing piano work throughout the record. I've got um, Holly Montgomery guesting on bass. She's with a band called Mustangs of the West, as well as on her own. Uh, Rick Shea, who plays, has a bunch of amazing records on his own, um, and plays as a sideman occasionally for uh, Dave Alvin and Wanda Jackson. He plays on a track on there. Um, Bob Berberick on drums on a track. Bob's from the band Grin back in the days, and Rosalind Mountain Boys. Um, Grin was Mills Lofgren of Bruce Springsteen's band's first band in this area. Um, Tiffany Shanta on violin, um, another beast of a player. Um, and that's, I think that's about most of the folks on there that I, I can think of off the top of my head. Um, I don't think if anybody else was on that. Um, we, we had, there were a couple of songs that had been brewing for a while, so they had different people on them. But that's, that's pretty much the lineup. Okay. Now, um, you're working with uh, Adam Dawson from Broken Jukebox Media right. to kind of get it out there, to create the buzz, get it to radio. Right. Um, and tell me a little bit about that relationship. Yeah. Um, so, I've, I've been putting out, this is my fourth full-length record. Um, I've put out a bunch of other stuff. And as of my last record, which was a, a, a duets covers record, um, I realized that I just couldn't do the job with standard radio promotion um, or on my own and getting the music out there. And so I never really got a chance to find out whether or not, you know, what the merit was of what I was doing, essentially. I couldn't get it out to enough people. So um, I, Adam was recommended to me, and um, we worked together on the last project and had great results and, and um, achieved what my goal was with it. And so this, because that was a covers record, and this is basically all original material, um, I was like, okay, let me... Let me put my butt on the line here and stick my own stuff out there in front of people and and see how it fares. So. Okay. Now, um, let's talk about the industry as a whole. Um, and we all know that, you know, as much as we want to complain about it, the consumer has now embraced streaming as a way to consume music. Um we can't fight it. I mean, from the consumer's right. perspective, it's a no-brainer. You know, right. me being of a certain age, I have purchased my music on vinyl, 8-track, cassette, <laughs> CD, downloads. And for 10 or $15 a month now, I have access to everything that's been recorded in the last 125 years not to mention right. the fact there are 20,000 new songs being put up 
da- uh, weekly up on Spotify. Right. So it's an immense amount of music that I now have, you know, access to for less than almost the uh, capital, uh, you know, record club used to be. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. So, you know... Uh, The unfortunate thing, though, is that the consumer now no longer looks at recorded music as a product to purchase. They don't want to store it on their their shelves. They don't want to store it on their phones. I mean, God, where would you put all your TikTok videos and selfies? So, you know, they don't want to store it anymore. How has this shift in perception by the consumer affected you as an artist? Well, I I think you go into a project um, knowing that you're probably never going to recoup what you put into it. Um, I think there are people who record more efficiently, certainly, than I do. Um, But I I think there's a second part to that equation, and that is that I think that their attention span isn't there anymore. So I think as a musician, you have to put out music more frequently than you used to have to put out. And by frequent, I mean, you know, at least maybe a couple of times a year, but at least once a year. Um, you can't go too far in between or, or you're just, you know, you disappear. And and I think that um, that's difficult. You know, if you're going to be in the recording studio, if you don't have a home recording studio and a way to do it affordably, um, if you don't record as a band where you go in and knock everything out in a couple of days and then it's not so expensive that way, um, it's, you go in knowing you're not going to make back what your investment is. So I think that's probably the biggest thing. Um, I, you know, it's it's disheartening as somebody who's been a music fan longer than he's been a musician um, to just see it devalued the way it is. But it is the reality. People want to stream. Um, there's, I don't think there's a way around it, honestly. I think we just have to continue to make music because it's important to culture and society. And somewhere... It'll come back around. I have no idea. I probably won't be here, but it will come back around. There'll, there'll be a time. Even now, we see people who are buying vinyl more than there's been in the past, which means they want to listen to music correctly. And by correctly, I mean the sound is the best possible sound, which is certainly not what you're getting off of streaming. And so I think that may end up being the deciding factor between the people who really want to sit down and listen to music as opposed to streaming, which tends to be more of a background filler. Well, and, and I tend to agree I with you. I mean, I, I own a studio, and I'm sitting in it as of now, and I have literally tens of thousands of dollars worth of equipment. I mean, you know, I got, you know, Focal speakers that are designed to, to you know, eke out every nuance of, right, a, of right. a track in order for me to mix properly, but it all is going to get bumped down to MP3s and pumped into, you know, earbuds. Uh, I right. mean, you know, mediocrity in, you know, the world of audio has now become the standard, as opposed right. to when I grew up, I mean, audiophile was a real term, you know, right. where you, you know, you wanted the best of what you could hear uh today it's not like that it's you know i don't think you know people are not going out and buying you know 
great expensive speakers and 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 amps and preamps and turntables and you know right. I mean you know they're buying turntables they can plug into their their laptop and it converts it to MP3 and pops it into a freaking um, earbuds right. you know right, so right. they they yeah. don't even know how to listen to vinyl properly anymore. Yeah. Uh, you know, but you know, I digress. I get off my soapbox now. <laughs> I'm um, with you. Yeah, you know, so it it's a it's a completely different world, and and like you said, right. people also listen differently. You know, right. in in our day, music and the listening of music was a participation thing. You would get your friends together. You would all bring the albums that you discovered and turn your friends onto it. And you'd sit there and you'd listen to side one and side two. And you'd have right. to physically put that needle on the turntable. Today, they're creating playlists that are nothing more than a soundtrack to their lives. You know, they're driving home playlists, right. their workout playlists, not that I work out. Um, they're <laughs> Um, you know, their yoga playlist, their, you know, uh, I'm pissed off at my girlfriend playlist, whatever it may be. Right, right. It's a completely yeah. different experience. Um, right. In one sense, it's good for the artist because genres now have disappeared to, from the consumer's mindset. They're looking right. for music that fits a mood as opposed to fits a predetermined genre. You know, right, so right. artists now can be more free and being more, um, how can I put it, um, diverse in how they present their music. They don't have to stay within a box. You know right, what I mean? Right. And, and yeah, I go ahead. I think there's a. I think the problem with that is it, it, it kind of cuts out the the those fringe people who are brilliant and thinking outside the box. You know, there there are artists who who probably wouldn't stand a chance of, of gaining a reputation now because yeah, it, it's it, it's everybody everything for everybody, but it's kind of homogenized down into these are kind of the you know. Here, here's what's good. You know, country music's not too far from rap. Rap's not too far from rock. You know, it all just kind of blends. So I think the only people to suffer in that will be the, the probably the, the truly outside-the-box people. Yeah, well, maybe. Now, um, we all know that the revenue from streaming is yeah. not sustainable <laughs> as a business right. model. Right. Um, right. Especially now... Spotify um, just came out with a new policy where they're not going to pay any artist that has less than a thousand streams. And, right. you know, I, I, I kind of looked at that. And, you know, you're talking a stream is 0.0003% of a penny. You say, oh, maybe that's not that much. But, you know, I started to do some calculations. And, you know, you got over 100 million songs on Spotify right now. And, of course, 20,000 a week being uploaded. And right. uh, according to um, the statistics, only 19.16% of those songs track over 1,000 streams. Yeah. Now That's think about that. Homie. Yeah. Think about that now. They're key, they're not paying anyone with less than a thousand streams. Right. 
So right. I started doing the calculation using the base of 100 million songs. Each stream is worth $25,000 to Spotify. Right. If you have 1,000 to 999 streams per month that you're not paying for, that's almost $24 million in streams that you're not paying for. Yeah, it goes directly into their pockets. Out of the pockets of the independent artist. I know that it's menial to each individual artist, but it is still a payment. It is still something, a revenue stream, that they now have taken away. And quite frankly, since they're utilizing this content to generate this $25 million, it's stealing. It is. It is. It's, it's, you know, here, here's the cycle. Napster, we're, we're going to give people music for free. All of a sudden, oh no, we're going to charge them because Napster's wrong to give to steal music and give it away for free. Oh, but we're just going to pay them so little that it's almost like stealing. And now we're coming back around full circle. To, no, we're, we're stealing it again. You know, and, and we're not stealing because you have the option not to put it out here. You know, it, it sucks. It sucks. And it, it, it is... And, and I had this argument and discussion and, and banter back and forth with musicians all the time. We kind of need to be there. We don't want to be there. Gee, what, what's our option? How do we get around there? I don't, I, you know, I have no clue. I have no clue how you beat the devil on this particular issue. I know that money aside, because no matter what they do, the money isn't significant to most artists, certainly like myself, but it is a principle. You are at least paying for what you're getting. And that's, right. that's just right. If you're making money off of it, you should be paying something. And, uh, and, well, I, yeah, and I, I, I absolutely agree with you. And, you know, um, one of the things that um, I found interesting is that, you, like you had mentioned, you know, Na- LimeWire gave way to Napster. Napster gave way to iTunes. You know, of course, iTunes was the windfall for all of us because... Apple didn't care about making music. You're making money off the music. They were selling right. iPods. So, you right, know, we right. were getting that 99 cents, you know, that per right. per download that, you know, that they they were charging. And, of course, you know, we all thought that, you know, Apple was going to own the music industry forever. And, of course, then comes Spotify. Right. We We do know that if you look at that timeline... There is going to be something that comes down the pike that's going to take the place of Spotify. It's going to replace it somewhere down the line. The idea at this point is to identify what's coming and get there before anyone else can start corrupting it and become the dominant force on this new platform. Now, I've been looking... And I've noticed there is some really significant uh, advances being made towards that. Utilizing the blockchain, which is that uh, technology the cryptocurrency uses, to create these digital applications and using smart contracts to create new streaming platforms. 
Um, you've got Sunnable, you've got Audius.co, which now has the backing of, of Katy Perry and Jason Derillo. Um, oh, oh, yeah. And what they're claiming is, number one, they're a decentralized system. So, in other words, no company or corporation or person can own the service. It is strictly owned by the fans who pay for the service and for the artists who put up their content. So this is a direct relationship between fan and artist. You know what I mean? And because of that, they're claiming they can pay up to 80% of the incoming revenue directly back to the artist. Hmm. Interesting, yeah. Well, you know, and again, I think all those things come down to, is it sustainable and, and is it incorruptible? <laughs> you know, well, I, you know, in theory, if, if there's no company owning it, then, but you know, the problem is things start out good and, and then, you know, profits went out and, and you know, they just, they changed the rules. Just like Spotify's doing right now. You know, they change the rules and there's not much that you can do about it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, I don't know what the answer is. Um, and, and, again, I don't think I'll be here to, to, to see it, um, though I am curious what, what it's going to look like for music down the road. Because, you know, the one thing we haven't really talked about besides the, the music itself is, you know, for those of us who have been around, things that used to matter was, like, who wrote the song? Who played right. on the song? You know, what, you know, that that kind of element is still missing. And my musical education, you know, happened because of records and because of, of covers and reading and finding out. And oh, yeah, the line and, of and notes. Yeah. Right. And, and that stuff is gone now in the process. And streaming will never have that much less... You know, I mean, there's, you know, you make up artwork for streaming, but who really cares about the artwork? It's it's an identifier for the company that's streaming your music. But the artist, you know, it's not like your fan base is looking at the cover of that single or the cover of that record going, oh, man, that would make a nice frame in my house like we used to do with records. You know? Right. So, right. Yeah. It, 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 it's a, um, it, you know, the only thing that's indisputable is the fact that it's here. It's here. It's not going anywhere. I mean, I think we're wise enough to understand that people are not going to go back to wanting to have a physical copy in mass. Um, they're not going to go back to wanting to house music on their phone when they don't need to. So I think those things are absolutes. I don't know how we. Um, I don't know how we make it fair for the musicians at the end of the day, so that they're getting paid for their work. Well, you know, it, it's like I said. We we need to start looking ahead. Um, right. And and there is more than this than just streaming going on. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Open Music Exchange, uh, OME uh, dot Audio. Is they're creating yeah. um, a marketplace and streaming service where you can uh, create these. NFTs, okay? But what they do is they isolate the consumer away from the cryptocurrency aspect of these things. So you can buy a digital key that will allow you to stream your music. Um, Their concept is is that, all right, you've got millions of songs on Spotify, but you really only listen to certain artists, you know? So why not allow the consumer to buy a digital key for that particular artist 
And then you have access to, you know, um, content that you can't get anywhere else, whether it's video content, direct contact that, you know, the the artist gets to, you know, give you um, insights in their songwriting process or, you know, watch them write a song or whatever. A whole bunch well, of different processes. Well, it's it's Patreon, but instead of asking for a donation, this right. is a direct sale. And right, 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 right. their concept is they're giving 98% back to wow. the artist. And there is a whole wide variety of things that you can attach to these NFTs, including artwork, including, uh, you know, physical copies, including uh, pretty much anything you can think of can be attached to these purchase tokens, so to speak. Um, I think the fundamental problem is that that, we, we kind of... We talked about it, but yeah, you know, it's it's really the elephant in the room is, is the fact that they can give us ninety eight percent, but ninety eight percent of nothing is still nothing. And at the end of the day, the people who are out there have now grown up. Most of them, and even those who didn't grow up in it, are now used to a world where you don't have to really pay for that. And so right. the bigger challenge is how do we induce them into valuing what we do again and being willing to pay beyond our, 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 our fan base? Because, you know, I mean, when you're, when you're an artist trying to build up a fan base and you've got your whatever your fan base is, you know, it's hard to survive just on that. You need to grow that. And unfortunately, the, the, you know, again, when we were kids, if you wanted to listen to music, you turned on the radio or you had to go out and buy the record or the 45 or whatever. You couldn't just, you had no choice. You couldn't right. decide that music wasn't, you know, the people who decided music wasn't worth anything didn't listen to music. You know, and so I think that's that's going to be the bigger hurdle. I think there will be bright people who come up with alternative platforms. But can we restructure the cultural thinking? Well, you know, I think it all comes down to creating um, content and creating things that the consumer looks at as a value add. Um, I think a good example of that um, is Taylor Swift. Um, She has been a genius in that she put out a vinyl album and had four versions of it. Same album, different covers... And you took the four covers and it made a clock when you turned it around. Stupid ass thing. But (laughs) that was brilliant. (laughs) It was brilliant because her fan base went out and bought all four versions. Right. It wasn't right. that they were buying the music. They were buying the experience. They were right. buying into Taylor Swift's marketing um, of her music and her her brand. I think that right. now becomes the new product is the brand. Yeah. yeah. Once we establish that and that we realize that we're not dealing with just a single dimensional products such as music that we need to start looking in terms of a three-dimensional thing where the music is the center 
But on the outright, that whole branding opportunity and all the products that brand can bring is what you need to now serve to your your fan base. And they now will invest in those different uh, brand products, so to speak. And there are this is other opportunity. Um, I don't know if you've heard of Songvest or Royal.io. No. No, these are, again, utilizing the blockchain, utilizing that technology. They allow you to actually purchase stock in a song where you can go and create these NFTs that represent your streaming royalties, your publishing royalties, whatever the case may be, and sell them to your fan base as a income generation. Um, I watched Nas, the rap artist, do this with two songs. And he was able to sell out and generate almost $600,000 in upfront income. In addition... He now had all of these fans, over 3,000 of them, that had an economic interest now to make sure his music is streamed. Because they're getting paid. Right. Because of of that. And now... Interesting, yeah. Yeah. And to top it off, these shares, so to speak, or NFTs, are bought and sold on an open market. So once I buy one, if I make a little money and I decide someone says, hey, I'll, I'll give you twice what you paid for it, and I sell it to him, Nas gets a commission off that resale, and that's in perpetuity forever. Interesting. So it becomes another revenue stream on top of the streaming and whatever else he's got going on, and you know, for his branding. So, you know, that could take the place of a record company. Interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you think about it, it's a it's a direction that we as independent artists would love to see happen is this decentralized music industry. Because there was an article in Billboard magazine that basically said out of the billions of dollars that are generated through the uh, music industry, only 12% actually gets to the artist. And that's all artists. That's not even considering the independent artists. And I'm sure that that percentage is way lower for the indie artist. That... um, that's a terrible statistic. You know, every time a songwriter writes a song, there's a line of people with their hands out trying to, you know, saying their piece of the pie of the work that you did, you know? So this whole decentralized music industry is designed to eliminate the middlemen in the music industry. And I think that's our biggest problem has been, you know, too many middlemen in the industry taking too much of what, really is deservingly the artist. Right. Yep, absolutely. Now, um, one of the things that happened, I think, when the pandemic hit, we all got locked down and we all went to the internet. We all started to create content, whether it was live streaming or, you know, showing our, you know, puppies, babies, and kittens and, you know, whatever the case may be. And content creation and social media marketing became the branding opportunity um, 
for independent artists. The more um, personal the content that you put up there, the more engaging the fan base became, almost like creating your own reality show. What are some of the things that you are doing to get the word out on this new release and to create your brand using content and social media? Um, probably not as much as, as I should. I mean, I think, you know, I'm relying pretty heavily on um, Adam and and his expertise to get the record into hands of people. And then I'm, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that people receive the, the record well and, and it sparks something that may be different from the next guy, which requires people to pay attention to. I, I've, I've had recently um, a, a bit of a knee jerk to, to the whole content thing. Um, I, I really want to make music, and I think music is art, and, and content to me is not art. Um, and I know it's a necessary evil to use social media, and I use many different platforms, and I put stuff out. We're releasing singles. I'm doing videos to go with the singles. I, I'm doing my due diligence, but I also still have that part that says, you know, I, I'm, I'm an artist. I'm creating music. Um, the music needs to speak for itself first and foremost. If it doesn't, I, I, I need to know that because, you know, maybe it's not the game that I should be in if it doesn't. Um, but I don't have any real secrets to, to that kind of stuff. I think, um, yeah, I don't, even, I don't even know that. And I'm a very brand aware in, in other aspects of my life and in how it works. I just don't think um, I've found how to apply it to myself in terms of, of distinguishing a brand. When we talked last time, um, I think I mentioned I consider myself to be a true Americana artist in that, you know, I got tracks that are, are, are more R&B soul kind of tracks. I got tracks that are hardcore country kind of tracks. I'm kind of all over the spectrum of what I would consider American music. And, and that's kind of just what I do. I just put myself out there. I don't have a particular vibe, I don't think, to the type of songs that I write. Um, and I, I think I just got to trust that um, I'll find an audience that's willing to listen to it. Big, small, whatever that audience may be. And right now, the, the hardest part of that is how do you get your head above the masses that are out there trying to do the same thing. And I think in my case, it's it's bringing somebody like Adam Wands who can, you know, get the record into the hands of people so that they can judge it that I might not otherwise be able to attract their attention. Okay. Well, you know, I really appreciate you coming on the show. It's always a pleasure, you know, having a discussion oh. with you. And Thank uh, you. Oh, my pleasure. And uh, we're going to give everyone out there a double shot from your new release. You know what, guys? Cool. Turn it up loud. Screw those neighbors. We're going to have some fun tonight. Thanks a lot. I appreciate being here. If I was a betting 
think I've learned a thing or two It's about damn time
Whether you're an independent artist or a fan that loves them, makingascene.org is the place for you. For the music fan, we bring you in-depth interviews and CD reviews from artists who are on the cutting edge of original music. For the independent artist, we bring you articles on music business, recording techniques, gear reviews, and interviews with industry professionals that give you real-world information to help you negotiate the new realities in the music industry and give you the tools you need to move your career to the next level. We bring you new content every day. Makingascene.org is the number one resource for the independent artists and the fans that love them. Head on over and become part of the Indie Revolution. Make you shout now. 